This is SciBite episode 94 for May 21st, 2013. everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live over jblive.tv Tuesday evenings and fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to look at some possibly sad news for the Kepler Space Telescope, wireless brain imaging, Remote ancient water, cancer genes, sound imaging, viewer feedback, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back in history and up in the sky this week. Holy smokes, Heather, that's a big show. Let's kick it off with the news. Okay, where do we start? All right, Kepler. It is the telescope that is beginning the 2,600 on exoplanets. Yeah, yeah, Kepler's been amazing. Yes, completely amazing. And it has these four reaction wheels, which help it, essentially they help balance the forces of solar pressure and kind of keeps the telescope, lets it have precise, you know, pointing capabilities. Mm -hmm. And last year, number two failed. So they only need three. I remember that, yeah. And now number four has failed. Uh-oh. So, Uh-oh. It's not like yeah, we can just earlier, run up there and fix it. No, last year, I mean, er, sorry, sorry. Um, earlier this year, they'd actually seen some friction, and then they kind of let it rest and did what they could, and then they actually got some movement, and it was, you know, they were excited, and then it, they weren't excited because it stopped working again. Oh man, this is a major disappointment. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things here. One. I mean, they they are they had a three and a half year you know prime mission that was la- that was you know so they're one year past that mm-hmm. now they still have like two years of data they haven't touched mm-hmm. so there is still a lot of you know back catalog of data so they're right now they're kind of in a point rest state where essentially they're um, kind of parked in a loosely pointed they're controlled by thrusters. So it kind of minimizes the fuel usage. Now it has thrusters. They're going to have um, a specific amount of fuel for the thrusters saved up because that's for the end of the mission. They had it planned so that at the end of the mission it could deorbit itself. Mm. So right now it's kind of at a very minimal use using that. But so even if they can't, so they're going to put everything to sleep. They're going to try to put, turn down all the reaction wheels and then wait and see if they can either get back number two or number four. four. You never know. It could happen. Hopeful shrug. Yeah, boy, but, no kidding. And I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. That the thing has served its designed duty length. So yeah, I grok that and I understand that. But it's just like, you know, it seems like almost every other week you have a story on here about, hey, guess what? Thanks to Kepler, we've discovered... X. And I know that even those oh, yeah. have mostly been from the data it's already collected, but just the idea that, you know, oh, I know. it seems like it's been and, phenomenally successful. Yeah, and it's 
really because you need three detections to you know really see stuff. We're wow. just now getting into the point where we can see planets with an orbit of a year. So we're just kind of, we haven't been in that track very long. Yeah, so it's right. like just starting for the like interesting planets that have slower orbits, not the ones that are speeding around at the fast of light, you know. Yeah. But so, so they're going to try to shut down and hope that one of them come back. But even if it doesn't, um, they won't be able to point precisely enough to its little patch of stars. But they might be able to still make some other kind of observation. Oh, I was wondering. So um, very limited, but. Yeah, because this is very, it was a this very specific design. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of limited, but they're kind of, kind of keeping their, uh, their options open. So that, you know, they could make more observations, um, terabytes and terabytes, uh, over two years of data still to go through. That's awesome. Um. But uh, sword saying yes, one orbit is a year local time. We're talking um, all the orbit definitions of length are all in Earth time. So it's you know it says that is two days of orbit mm. because you really need an Earth reference because even some of the planets in our own solar system it takes them longer for the for a day than it does a year, but their planets are rotate all the way around takes longer than to go all the way around the sun. So we use kind of, that's the reference. That's like our measurement scale. But, so it's not necessarily space junk, as uh, poor <laughs> Linux King said, it made me cry. Um, but it's space disabled. Yeah. yeah, no, it's all right. Limited. Limited, space limited, space limited. Yes, observationally limited. Yeah. Um, so, and... Uh, Floppy Dog indicates the uh, Space Web, uh, James Webb Telescope. And it's it's not so much for this type of observation. So we just kind of see what's going to happen. But this is, I definitely cried mm-hmm. over this one. That's I saw this and I was like, yep, top episode. Very sad. Yeah. Well, if you hear any updates on it, let us know, huh? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, you know, this stuff happens. And like you yep. said, they did get their three years out of it. Yep. Incredible. All right, Heather, any other thoughts on that? No, I don't think so. Well, let's take a quick pause, one moment, and uh, just uh, do a brief reminder that the Jupiter Broadcasting programs, in large part, and in some cases in all part, are brought to you by you, the audience. And uh, you can do that by patronizing our affiliates before you shop. So if you go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the website, you'll see links down there for Amazon and eBay and Netflix. You already know that. You got Newegg. You got your mint.com. Boom. Extensions. Put them in your Chrome. Put them in your Firefox. Automatically take a shopping session. Don't even have to think about it. Love it. So I wanted to make you a pick because sometimes there's just too many good choices. Well, if you're like Heather, sometimes you wait for the Blu-ray to come out. And ladies and gentlemen, I went to the theater so you don't have to. And I'm here to tell you, you should buy Star Trek Into Darkness on Blu-ray. And in the show notes, we will have linked the limited time edition that's selling for about 20 bucks off if you get it from Amazon that includes a phaser. Oh my gosh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the phaser, the, the, the little weapon part swivels around like they do in the movie between stun and uh, kill. So oh you, my gosh. Yeah, it, it actually looks really good. <laughs> so like, I picture myself like, I'm going to be very carefully holding it and like, pew, pew, right. helping, helping the crew. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why you watch me? And you know, it's gonna be. I'll tell you on Blu-ray. Absolutely, get get it on Blu-ray. This I, I'm so happy to be able to say that this Star Trek Into Darkness 
was the best looking special effects I've ever seen in a movie. And I'm just glad to say I can Ow. say that about a Star Trek movie. So this is going to be one to get on Blu-ray. You know, if you don't want to get this, but you want to get something else, if you just use the link in our show notes, anything you buy during your shopping session on Amazon will be attributed to us. But why not get Star Trek Into Darkness when they got it for 20 bucks off on the pre-order? I don't know when they're going to ship it, but, you know, you might as well get it now while you can. Yeah. All right, <laughs> all right Heather. Well, with that all done, let's move on to the news bite. Okay, now I have a feeling this next story could transform, sir, sure, maybe trauma diagnosis, but also video games. Am I right? Uh, video games, I'm not so sure. Okay. This is about using wireless signals to provide real-time, non-invasive diagnosis of brain swelling or bleeding. So hopefully mm. you haven't been, you know, Wii, using your Wii or your connector, dancing about and tripped over your couch and fallen. And then you need this to kind of, so they can see how bad your brain injury is. But this is kind of giving a, what they call like a cost-effective tool for a medical diagnosis to triage, in, you know, injuries where access to medical care or medical imaging is kind of limited. So maybe, you know, there's a lot of places on earth where there isn't a, you know, a close-by MRI machine or CT scan or anything like that. So this would kind of allow some sort of imaging on a smaller scale without all of that crazy equipment. So these are, essentially it's two coils into like a helmet-like device. Fits over the head. And one of the coils acts as like a radio emitter. And the other one acts like a receiver. And so the signals are kind of broadcast through the brain. <laughs> now, they're really, really weak. So, you know, if you have if you're in the room and you have a radio on or a television on, that's about the strength of what this is broadcasting across your brain. So That actually just makes those things sound like they're too strong. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not in danger. You're no more in danger than, you know, watching something. Okay. So, okay. So what happens is that the changes in tissue composition, like between brain tissue or the amount of fluid in it for you know, if there's swelling because there's extra fluid in the mm -hmm. brain mm -hmm. or so all those different things conduct that sound differently. So it's uh, Ani, I think your name is in the chat room. Uh, if you have a really thick skull, this is all about just it's almost like think when they if you way back to uh, school when they talked about uh, geology, you have the picture of the earth and the crust. And you have an earthquake, and it hmm. sends the sig and it sends the signals through the different layers at different rates, mm -hmm. kind of bends it differently. Mm -hmm. So they're able to kind of see. They're able to kind of use a computer algorithm to say, "Hey, there's completely normal brain tissue. There's some swelling here. There's to kind of get a quick idea of the likelihood of you know kind of injury." They actually able to test a prototype. Um, in, uh, in a military hospital in uh, Mexico for the Mexican army. 46 adults, ages 18 to 48, eight of them had brain damage, and you could, there is a clear, dis clear distinction between those with some sort of a brain damage from uh, bleeding or swelling, and they could definitely tell the difference, or a regular brain. Or, has, you know, a normal brain, should I say. That has some, yeah, I could definitely healthy. see how, uh, you know... Um, 
being able to put these on a patient's head and have it just scan and give them information like that and monitor them all the time could be could be very powerful. I was thinking when you said brain imaging, I was thinking like something that monitors my brain and, and the computer responds based on my brain. That's why I was thinking video games. Not mm-hmm. uh, not quite not quite that uh, application for this here, but also yeah. but still very 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 important. Yeah, uh, I wonder how long till something like this gets to market. Well, you sure. said they're already using it in testing. They've had a prototype. This is the kind of thing that I think definitely it's pretty remote safe, locations right? or it's, you know we use this kind of technology well, yes, for all kinds completely. of stuff already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's safe. It's just one of those where it's a medical instrument that they could use. Um, in remote locations in you know, various countries that don't have many MRI machines or anything like that. Or I mean, there's some places, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. even, you know, in first world, you know, countries here in the U.S. where it's a pretty long way between you and a CT scanner mm-hmm. if you're way out in the country. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of be an initial idea about what's going on so you can start treatment measurements. Awesome, Heather. That's cool. All right. Should we move on to the two-byte news? Let's go. Here we go. Good job, boys. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? All righty. A a UK-Canadian team of scientists has actually discovered ancient pockets of water, which have been isolated deep underground for billions, with a B, years, and contain a lot of the chemicals known to support life. No kidding. Yeah, so before this, um, the only water that they discovered of this age was found trapped in like tiny bubbles in rocks, totally incapable of supporting life. Right, right. So this, um, the crystalline rocks surrounding the water are thought to be about 2.7 billion years old, but no one thought that water could actually be that same age until now. So they've been using some groundbreaking techniques to show the fluid is at least one and a half billion years old, could probably be significantly older. What they're able to see is that this uh, water in the Canadian mine pours from rock, this rock at a rate of nearly like two liters a minute. Really? Just two billion old, two billion year old water just pouring out? Yeah. And so they're, <laughs> they're, they're not sure exactly where it's going from, but they've analyzed the water corn coming out of these boreholes. I mean, it's two, almost two and a half kilometers under the ground, under Ontario, Canada. Yeah. yeah. And it's got, you know, dissolved gases like hydrogen, methane, well, if it's wow. capable of supporting life, there could be little uh, little things in there that, I mean, you can imagine, like, it's a snapshot in time, right? You look yeah. at that and you go, okay, well, how have these microbes changed from in two billion years? Have they changed a ton? Have they not changed at all? I mean, look look at the, I mean, before, you could do before and after. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's, the type of water it is is very similar to what that has found around hydrothermal uh, oh, vents sure. in the deep ocean mm-hmm. where that had microbial life. Mm-hmm. But what's also interesting about this is that the similarity between the rocks there and the rocks on Mars are very comparable. Oh, interesting. So the kind of rocks uh, deep within the Mars' surface. So it's kind of an interesting, hey, we've got some sort of a comparison here if some sort of gooey microbe swimmy thing can be in the water there. Then it is Another step more likely oh. that it could be on that life similar could live, be live on Mars. I see what you'd be implying. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like how you take a story about ancient water in Canada and you, you find the Mars angle to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
it's it's not my fault. They actually talked about it oh, in okay. the story as well, but it's not like the word Mars skips my vision. Right. It like jumps out of a page what? and like right. sits on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's like me whenever I'm anywhere in public and somebody uses a computer term, I instantly tune into their mm-hmm. conversation, and I like didn't even realize I was paying attention. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that sounds really neat, and uh, can't wait till they bottle it and sell it on Amazon. Why don't we talk about flipping jeans? Because I've heard of flipping houses. Is it kind of the same thing? No, not quite. They uh, Researchers at John Hopkins have discovered that a specific gene that when you uh, suppress it in tumor cells actually puts a halt to the cell's growth mm. and a whole bunch of other processes needed for the tumors to enlarge and spread. So you're they're kind of showing for the first time that switching this specific gene off in really aggressive cancer cells really dramatically changes what they look like and what they're doing. So they've taken, um, what they did was they applied the technique to several strains of uh, breast cancer cells, which they call triple negative ones, which are really aggressive. It's a really aggressive form of cancer. doesn't respond to most therapies. So when they suppressed that specific gene, it actually grew very slowly and it really didn't migrate or you know, spread to anywhere else. Hmm. And they, you know, they tried implanting the tumor cells into mice as well. They Mm -hmm. grew them. If it, you know, if it didn't have this uh, genes, you know, switched off essentially, then it spread into lungs and everything was not happy. But when they actually did block that gene, then it was much better. They didn't, you know, grow very fast. It didn't spread really. So that's, um, kind of amazing. Yes. So they can just go in there and say, all right, flip the switch. And yeah, you got, so if you have existing cancer cells, they're there, they're, they hang out, but your yep. body stops producing more. Well, it doesn't stop. It okay. significantly slows it oh, down. Okay. okay. Well, still. Okay. Yeah. Well, if, it that with it down, other treatment if it stops methods, it from spreading, right. that catches you dramatically good time oh uh, yeah you i know, mean so, yeah especially if you caught that early right yes yeah yeah i mean yeah. and it's so aggressive that if you spot it and you treat it then it gives you enough time to you know go in for surgery or the treatment regimens and sometimes with this the aggressive cancer the moment you spot it between then and your doctor's appointment mm-hmm. something's probably changed mm-hmm. so really being very hopeful for that kind of a thing yeah absolutely all right well this next story is exactly the exact story I need because I have the check engine light on my vehicle right now, Heather. Tell me yes. what we're going to do about it. Okay. Researchers have created this camera that creates like a, a heat map-like thing, except with sound. So what it's doing is it's finding the noisy part of your engine. So you pop the hood, you aim this at it. Now, this isn't the first one of these has ever existed, but it's like four pounds. It's pretty portable. So like you hold it up, point it at your camera, and like... Put it at your camera. Point it at your engine. At the engine click. of the vehicle, yeah. Yeah, the engine of your vehicle while it's on. And then it kind of takes a, a quick, you know, a, vis- a visual image. And then it lays on top the uh, the sound. So it kind of analyzes where the loud sound is coming from. And you can see like this unhappy big red splotch right there. That's pretty cool. You know, yeah, and like I've had my car and one of the guys at work is like literally like the car guy for one of the other projects. And I'm like... Come listen. Yeah. He'll come and he'll like put his you know hands over his ear and try to go around and try to figure out where where it's know, coming where from. Where the well, sound is coming from. Based on the fact that it's coming from here, I think it's probably your water pump, 
Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Telling me how doomed I am. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that kind of a thing where, you know, I don't have the best hearing. So I just kind of be like, there's ugly sound. It's coming from somewhere in there. And I point to the general direction of the car. You know, what's weird about mine this time around is uh, usually that's how I that's how I like I I can tell by the sound before any other indication in the vehicle tells me I have a problem. And then usually I'll tell I'll tell the mechanic this the sound it's making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that usually helps me narrow it down this time. It's not, I don't hear any weird sounds. Just the engine light came on. Hmm. Weird. Just weird, Heather. So maybe one day they'll get this kind of thing to market. It would be really cool. Although I'm sure a huge part of this is the fancy microphone system they use. Because I think you, didn't you mention it has like 30 digital microphones? So Yeah, it has a lot. So it may be not that. Not a smartphone you know, app pick, anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, it's not a smartphone app. It may not be something that we pick up at our local, uh, no. you know, car well, shop where we pick ha- up Well, stuff. some mechanics could have it as like a tool. Well, yeah, smaller, mecha- you know, yeah. some mechanics could yeah, have yeah. them. And that would be the useful location. All right, Heather, well, guess what? The Sidebite uh, 2000 is sitting here, and it's just flashing at me like it's some sort of maniac. So Uh-oh. I think that means we have some incoming communications. That's good. That was either the incoming communications button or the self-destruct. I kind of rolled the dice. I didn't um, want to scare you, but... Yeah, I- I'm grateful for that. Yeah. All right, so what do we get? All righty. Peter Daintree, or Corliss from the chat room... Uh, pointed out a story about the space station ammonia leak and fix. So oh, okay. you may or yeah. may not have seen a story this week where on the space station, they had one of the astronauts was looking out. They're like, huh, see little white flakes floating away oh, man. out from around the corner. You're like, that kind of a thing is never good. Uh, Houston, you're like, see a, a couple. You're like, okay. And then a couple more. And it's like, oh no, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. So they were actually able to narrow it down to a coolant pump. Mm. And these, uh, they actually had to go in and replace it, but it's using uh, an ammonia coolant. It, it's, you know, one, it cools down some power channels. It's like one of the eight power channels that control all of the various power uses on the systems on the space station. So it was, you know, vital to overall operations, but the, the crew was never in any danger. It is actually pretty spooky to watch this video of these ammonia yeah. particles floating away because when you realize there should be absolutely nothing out there, and when yeah. you see that, you're like, oh, that's part of us floating away. It is pretty yeah. spooky, actually, to see that. Yeah, it was. It definitely wasn't the best thing to look out your window and see at the space station. I'll tell you, it was oh. interesting, though, because, Heather, I uh, it sounded pretty grave from what I was hearing in the mainstream media uh, that they might even have to evacuate. No. Uh, that was never sad. really the case? Of course, they're always going to say you might need. It's like calling the nurse hotline. Be like, I have this. Should I go in? Nurse yes, always says she, comes in. Always. Yeah. Yep, you're always right. says yep. comes in and see that. So, yes, they're always going to say, oh, my goodness, yes. But, no, they weren't in any specific danger. It was essentially, okay, figure out what's going on. This thing is broken. Um, so we don't need a new space station? Well, we do need it. Oh, man, we are so. Oh, come on. You think they're going to get together we, and build one, another one? Well, you know, newer and fresher and cooler instrumentation is always awesome. Yeah, that's true. But but essentially what they had to do is an unplanned spacewalk, which is always kind of fun because generally these things you like plan out mm-hmm. for like months in advance and you practice and they have this big um, underwater pool that they can go through in pra- uh, the neutral buoyancy lab. You know, it's like 12 meters, 40 feet deep swimming pool. It's got mock-ups of everything, and you can sit in the, essentially, you're in bulky spacesuits, and you go through and you practice how to do everything. So what they did is, they took a couple of astronauts here on Earth, 
dumped them into the pool with, you know, set it up so that they could go through and try various different ways to do it, you know, to get it fixed and to switch out this, uh, uh, this pump. Right. So ideally when they go out in actual space, they go out once, they do the right thing the first time and it's yep. already all figured out for them. Yep. So the team here on Earth said, okay, here are the steps. Here are the instrument tools you need to bring out there with you. You know, one, two, three, four. And thumbs up, you have a happy science day. <laughs> oh, well, then. okay then. <laughs> there you go. Well, cool. All right. Well, I'm glad that they don't have to completely abandon the International Space no. Station because of an ammonia leak, because that's what I was told. Well, stand by, Heather, because it is time for a spacecraft update. <laughs> All right. What is our spacecraft update? All right. Opportunity. Mm. That little rover, it is still chugging along so long after. And in fact... Yeah, you know, the, the, the rover, that rover has been going for longer than some of the people alive that listen to this show. Dot, dot, dot. Crickets. It's, it's crickets, very possible, crickets. right? Because we have, we know we have kids that listen with their with their parents. True. Yep. Very. That, now that you say that. Yep. I mean, they did in 2004. So, yeah, it's possible. certainly possible that this little guy has driven longer. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, way back in 1972, Apollo 17 astronauts drove their lunar vehicle for about 22.21 miles. Mm. And yay, they'd been the furthest traveling NASA vehicle until now. Oh. Opportunity rover. On May 15th, drove about 263 feet, which meant that its total odometer was 22.22 miles. So now it has traveled farther than any U.S. spacecraft outside of Earth, including all the lunar rovers. Curiosity needs to get a move on it. It's got a long way to go. Now, it's not the farthest for anyone. You still got the Soviet Union's uh, remote-controlled uh, L- uh, Lunokada 2. Well, we don't have it a drove- beat by too much, though. They don't have a beat by no. too much. No, not too much. Uh, remember, I talked about uh, some of this back in um, January mm-hmm. of this year, Cybite 79. And I kind of said, all right, here's my, uh, based upon past, you know, what it's been doing in the past. Here are my estimations about when it's going to, you know, beat certain right. thresholds. I remember. Yep. And so I guessed a certain amount, like two months. So that would have been very March. Now, I forgot about the conjunction. Conjunction so gave, messed us up. Yeah, so I gave myself a month for that. But I'm still about a month off from what I guessed. Mm, that's not bad, though. So, I mean, at that point, I had guessed six months to take on um, the Soviet. So that would have been July. So I'm guessing with the conjunction, it's going to be August or September. That it'll actually be, it'll actually um over Over travel. Day, yeah. Yeah, now, given, you know, give or take, because it always depends. If, sci-bi- <laughs> if science is, they've got some really awesome scientific things to really analyze, then that would slow it down. Mm. But right now, they, you know, they went to this crater. They weren't all the way around this crater. They've been doing a lot of information there. And they've, they've actually left it, and they're trying to travel to a new, um, sort of a new location. They're trekking towards uh, what they call Slander Point. So they've got about one, almost one and a half miles to go to their next sort of goal. Hmm. So everything with opportunity is always, you have a lofty goal of this location, 
but pick every flower along the way that looks really interesting. Yeah. Smell, stop and smell every rose. <laughs> Not necessarily every rose, but everyone that looks okay. really good. You're like, that is a really interesting rose. Let's stop and smell that. I'm, I'm kind of impressed that the Russians got as far as they did back in the late 70s or yeah. mid 70s even. Early 70s, yeah. 73. Oh, yeah, 73. I mean, they were, I mean, that's ambitious. Look at them go. Yeah. Of course, maybe they just didn't smell as many flowers. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Mars flowers. Speaking of Mars flowers, should we do our curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. All right. So what's curiosity up to? All right. We've actually reached our second drilling location. The first one, the first rock ever to be drilled on outside of the Earth by a river was about three months ago at the John Klein. We, that was, you know, they went and that's where they studied and they saw internally where they saw, hey, we have some, but look, this um, rock looks like it could have been when life would have been, you know, capable. Right. So now they drove about nine feet away to a similarly-ish looking rock. They've called uh, Cumberland. And now they're sort of repeating the whole process at this location. Okay. So they're going to say, okay, is all the data here from this new material the same? You know, is it saying the same thing that the first one did? That's what you kind of, you know, you don't have a separate instrument, but you want to check a couple different places. So is it just that one rock Mm -hmm. that was, you know, crazy and awesome? Was it, you know, first time instrumentation, something funny going on? So now, if you drill into the second rock and it looks very similar, right? Do you get the same then, data? Do you get the same or the same results? Yeah, is it very similar results? Then it's more trustworthy, and it's also kind of leads you to say, okay, the results are right, and there is a larger area that this was existing in. So it's not just one rock; it's like this little area mm-hmm. that could have sustained life. It's not anomaly. It's actually this whole area is actually looking like this, and if that's a good sign, if that's yeah. true, yeah. Well, there you go. You know, we sent a laser-equipped rocket power nuclear with nuclear reactor powered with rockets rover yep. to drill holes into rocks. But those holes will tell us if the building blocks of life exist or not. Not such a boring mission, even if the means of doing so seem a little on the boring side sometimes. Oh, I'm just saying when you're driving around drilling rocks, but okay. you got to keep in mind it's happening on a whole other planet. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Right? I mean, that always is yeah. win. That's this baseline win right there. All right, Heather. Very good. Well, then uh, step in the time machine because okay. uh, we need to jump back. Here we go. Close the door. Wait, oh, oh. Yeah, that that's scary. right. Biofuel. I got some painted oil in this thing. Got oh, my gosh. Oil. That's what that smell is? Nope. All right, Heather. Our destination this week is 82 years ago. Took up. Nope. Took us to uh, May 27th, 1931. Heather, what happened this week in science? August Picard and Charles Nipfer, I butchered his name, I know, uh, took man's first trip into the stratosphere. They rode in a balloon to altitude of 51,800 feet, nearly 10 miles above the Earth. Now, this is back in 1931. If there's like a picture, it's like, you know, essentially like a steel ball. They kind of pressurized this can- can- cabin which they call, it's more like a, like, that took a lot of guts. Yeah. Because, like, you're going to put us, you know, you're jumping into this balloon 
You're going into this little sphere of metal. Like, okay, we're going to go up 10 miles. They had, you know, some instrumentation, so they're actually using things to investigate cosmic rays. But... Oh. So there was, like, some actual science going on, but it's still, I was like, wow. Fitting that it was a Picard, too. <laughs> Spelled a little differently, but... Yeah. Still counts. You know, 400 years, they might have taken out one of the seas. You never know. Yes. All right. Very cool. Boy, wow. And that was just 82 years ago. That It's funny how far we've come in only yeah. 82 years. All right. Let me recalibrate so we can look up in the sky this week. This week, not a lot in star news, but we have a lot of exciting news with planets. Oh. Saturn is kind of the boringer one this week. And you look to around twilight, look to the southeast, and you'll see it with a, uh, the blue giant star Spica to its upper right. So in the southeast, you've got Saturn and the star Spica. So Saturn is the, the planet a little bit closer to the Earth, so that's why it's connecting with the Earth. And Venus and Jupiter are the shining stars, so to say. So this week, they're, having, or they're getting closer to a conjunction, as when objects in the sky appear to be really close, at least from our perspective. Because I mean, realize Jupiter and Venus are very far apart from each other. But in our sky, they're actually going to be getting closer and closer each night until about uh, the 28th, mm. when they will be only one degree apart, or that is one the width of one pinky finger held at arm's length. So if you're not driving, hold out your hand, hold out your arm, one little pinky, they're going to be that close together. And that is Jupiter and Venus. So they're really bright. They're going to be really close together. And so they're starting to get closer every day. There's a video in the show notes. You can check it out. So about 40 minutes after sunset, um, they're starting now. And you can kind of see them getting closer and closer each night. So if you look out, you know, after uh, sunset each night, you can see them getting closer and closer. And by the 28th, you will get to see an awesome, awesome sight. Very cool, Heather. Well, so that's called conjunction. Conjunction. There you go. I know, I've heard it kicked around before, but I don't think I ever quite connected what it actually stood for. Well, you mentioned the show notes. Everything Heather has talked about uh, is linked to copious amounts of detail in the show notes with secondary and tertiary and even, what's the, what, what is it when you have four links and four references <laughs> to something, Heather? What is that called? <laughs> <laughs> as well as video embeds and all of that kind of stuff if you want to catch anything. Heather, I think that brings us to the end of the show, doesn't it? I think so. All right, very good. Well, folks, don't forget you can join us live on Tuesdays over at jblive.tv at 7.30 p.m. Pacific or grab SideBite as a download Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And don't forget we have RSS feeds so you can just subscribe and get the show automatically every time. Heather, thank you for the great show. Thank you. All right, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. Hope to see you right back here next week. 